referring to Jesus. And when he came home, Jesus spoke of this incident first, asking, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take toll or tribute, from their children or from others? When Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the children are free. However, so that we do not give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a coin. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. And so that's God's word for us this morning. A um, little bit of a strange story, um, but if you have been, um, if you've heard any one of my messages before, what I generally like to do to walk through stories, especially this kind of a story, is ask a series of questions. And the first of these questions is this. What exactly, what in the world was this temple tax that Peter and Jesus and these tax collectors were talking about? What exactly was that all about. And so I think in order to dig into that question, we're going to need to spend just a few minutes digging through a little bit of Israel's history. So just stick with me for a couple of minutes. Now, some of you already know this, that the uh, temple was the center of religious life for the Israelite people. It was there that they believed that the, that the fullness of God dwelt in their midst. And the earliest form that this took was something called the tabernacle. And here's kind of an a, a imaginative image of the tabernacle that we can kind of piece together through the descriptions that we get in the Old Testament. This is what the tabernacle looked like. It was a, a movable tent of a kind. And what, what happened was this tabernacle, this tabernacle community came out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They were led out by Moses. And they lived uh, out in the wilderness in the Sinai Peninsula, Peninsula for a time. And what they did was as they moved around, they would take this structure down and they would set it up in a new location. And the camp would be uh, centered directly around this tabernacle. And the tabernacle was directly in the middle. Now, Centuries later, uh, or uh, a little bit of time later, the Israelites moved from the wilderness, crossed the Jordan River, and went into the Promised Land. And there, uh, centuries later, King Solomon built a temple to replace the tabernacle. And this is kind of a, an image of what the first temple of uh, Jerusalem might have looked like. Now, as you can kind of see from the picture, uh, they were very similar in design. You know, the this is the main structure back here. You have the altar over here, and there's a few ceremonial um, platforms right there with water in them. And you can see kind of a, a crowd gathering here for worship and some of the priests and the worship leaders right here in the front. And so this is what we believe that the temple looked like for about 400 years. But then the Babylonians came and they leveled this temple. They destroyed Jerusalem and took the people into exile. Now, the people eventually returned from exile, and when they got back, they built a new temple in the site of the first temple. But that temple wasn't nearly as um, grandiose as Solomon's temple here. Now, fast forward a little bit. Um, right before Jesus was born, a, a new king rose to power. His name was King Herod. And what he did was he went through this huge building project. And one of the things he did was he built a new temple on the site of the second temple. And so this is the temple that we believe uh, Jesus grew up around, Herod's temple. And as you can see, this is uh, even more grandiose than Solomon's temple, the first temple of Israel. Now, I say all that to tell you this, that that history 
kind of gives you an idea of how very important and central the temple was to the Israelite, to their lives together, to the, to the Jewish temple. And so what you see here, I mean, just imagine this. Imagine what it took to put this together, the resources, all the things that had to happen. And now imagine what that would take in order to maintain it. And so what is the temple tax? The temple tax, uh, to, to put it simply, it covered the maintenance of the temple as well as the cost of additional supplies like the sacrificial animals, the wine, the flour, the oil, incense, and the robes for the priests. And so one of the, uh, one of the things that I learned about this temple tax is that it was called the didrachma. And what the didrachma was, was it was the double drachma. Now, the double drachma was uh, out of circulation in Jesus' time. So what people typically did is they would uh, pair up together and pay the temple tax with a single Roman coin. And you'll notice if you were reading carefully um, in the Matthew story that Jesus said, when you take the coin from the fish his mouth, pay for your tax in mine. That's typically how people paid. Now, the tax collectors would go to the towns of Israel, they would announce the tax on the 1st of March, and they would set up booths from the 15th through the 25th to collect the money. And if anyone didn't make that deadline, what they would have to do is they would go to the temple directly in Jerusalem and pay after that. And so that's just a little bit of the context for the temple tax. Now, as I was preparing this message, that led me to probably the most interesting part of this message. And, and what I learned was that there was some considerable debate in Jesus' time over the nature of this tax, specifically whether it was voluntary or whether it was obligatory. Were people supposed to pay the tax or were they simply, um, was that simply up to them to choose whether or not that was the case? So I did a little bit of digging and I found two passages in the Old Testament that kind of give us a little bit of light, that shed a little bit of light on this debate. And so the first of these that I wanted to cover today is from Exodus chapter 30. And it reads like this. Each one who is registered from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. You shall take the atonement money from the Israelites and shall designate it for the service of the tent of meeting. Before the Lord, it will be a reminder to the Israelites of the ransom given for your lives. Now, you remember how we talked briefly before about the uh, tabernacle um, community in the wilderness? Well, this was addressed to that community, and we find that the command was written in those days before the people came into Israel, before they had their first temple. It was when they had the tabernacle. And we learned two principles from this passage. We learned first that the temple tax was practical. It was practical in the sense that it went to the service of the tent of meeting. And we also learned that it was spiritual, that it served as a reminder of God's redeeming grace amongst the community. And so the Pharisees of Jesus' day, what they thought uh, was on the basis of this passage that the temple tax was obligatory, that people must pay it. They were required to pay this tax. 
But there were others who disagreed. Uh, for instance, one group that disagreed were called the Essenes, and they were kind of a Jewish sect that had um, established themselves outside of the mainstream of Jewish life. And what they said was that the temple tax was, based on this passage, a one-time obligation. When you turn 20 years of age, you would go and you would pay this tax, and that would be it. And some took it even further, and they said that this was a one-time obligation of just the tabernacle community in that particular time of Israel's history. And so, you know, one of the things that I wanted to highlight was the second passage, which is from Nehemiah 10, to kind of put these in conversation together. We also lay on ourselves the obligation to charge ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the rows of bread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed festivals, the sacred donations, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Now, one of the things to know about this uh, passage in Nehemiah uh, to keep in mind is the timeline, right? We talked earlier about how um, Israel came to the promised land, were exiled, and came back from exile and built a second temple. Well, this takes place during the second temple period after the people had returned from Israel and rebuilt the temple. And so I'd say that to say this, that the events that are described in Nehemiah 10 are nearly 1,000 years after the time of the Exodus 30 passage. So um, what we learn here is that the temple tax was freely chosen as an ongoing obligation. The temple tax was, an on, was freely chosen as an ongoing obligation. And I can kind of uh, look out and see some of the, the wheels turning out there uh, that this seems kind of like a contradiction of terms, you know, freely chosen obligation. And I promise in just a few minutes, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to explain exactly what that means. But for right now, I just want you to know that um, in Nehemiah's day, they lived in a very hostile environment, um, surrounded by enemies. They had seen God's work in the midst of their community, and they, they, they wanted to do something. They wanted to, to attend to what was most important, and that was the service of the temple. And so, you know, we learn from the uh, Sadducees of Jesus' day that they thought the temple tax ought to be a voluntary offering based on this passage. And what their argument was is that this Nehemiah community here made the choice on putting this obligation on themselves, and every successive generation should then be free to do the same. And so that's what they thought. And so uh, the Sadducees believed the people ought to decide for themselves. So if you've followed me this far, you're probably thoroughly confused. Okay, so was this a voluntary or was this an obligatory tax? What's going on here? Well, the scholars don't agree on this. I looked in every commentary you can think of, and I could not get a straight answer. And I think it's because that um, the debate was so heated in Jesus' day. Now, here's what I think about it, though. <clears throat> I think that the temple tax evolved over time. It started its life as a, um, what became the temple tax started its life as kind of a one-time contribution of the tabernacle community, and then I believe it became more of a form of ongoing, uh, ongoing support in the days of Nehemiah. Now, in Jesus' time, 
Um, it may well have been voluntary, but there was a certain expectation that was set because Jerusalem uh, and the land of Israel was under foreign occupation. There was a, a certain expectation that you would support the temple. And you see, some believe that when the tax collectors came to Peter, they might have been trying to trick or catch Jesus refuse to pay the tax as some basis of an accusation against him. And now you might recall the story um, of Jesus uh, and another group of Pharisees who came to him and they asked him, uh, is it lawful to pay the uh, Roman emperor taxes? Um, and they kind of put this question out to him as an either or sort of thing, either a yes or a no. And they said, and Jesus said to them something really simple. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is that's right. And so Jesus answers with a both and. And so I found that really, really interesting because this story kind of ties into the, that same family of uh, what we call controversy stories of the Pharisees coming or the tax collectors coming and trying to find something about Jesus that they can then turn around and accuse him on. So the next question we've got to ask is this. Why is any of this important? Why did we just spend the last five to 10 minutes talking about this temple tax? Well, uh, I'm gonna tell you why. You see, the debate in Jesus' time, it informs our interpretation of Jesus' response to Peter and the tax collector's encounter. Now, you'll notice that in the story, when Jesus comes back home, uh, what's the first thing he does? He, he brings up the encounter. He wasn't even present to see. He wasn't there. And yet he says to Peter, so Peter, from whom do the kings of the earth take temple or take tribute uh, or toll? Is it from their own sons or is it from others? And Jesus, uh, Peter, of course, replies, uh, it's from others, it's not from the sons. Now, what Jesus is referring to here is an ancient practice of em empires. What they would do is they would come and they would conquer lands and they would impose heavy taxes on their subject nations. Israel uh, was a subject nation of Rome. And so this was something that the people were intimately uh, familiar with. And so what would happen was they would end up taking the brunt of the taxes um, of that uh, nation that had conquered them. And so what Jesus is saying here is that I am not subject to the temple tax because of who I am. Now, if you recall in Luke chapter two, this is the, uh, the only story we have in the gospels about um, Jesus as a young boy. You might recall that Jesus got separated from his parents. His parents looked all over for him. And when they, they found him, they found him in the temple. And he was surrounded by the, the, the teachers of the law. And he was kind of talking and asking them questions. And he refers to, to the temple as something very interesting there. He calls it my father's what? House. My father's house. And so what Jesus is affirming here with Peter is that he is indeed the son of God. And Jesus' response to Peter can be summed up in two very important words, freedom and offense. Freedom and offense. Now, we all have a good idea of what freedom means, but I think biblically, in order to truly understand what freedom means, we need to understand what offense means. 
Now, offense, most of us, where, where our minds go with that is we think that offense means uh, insulting somebody else or maybe even annoying them. But offense uh, in the Bible, or at least the word that appears as offense in our Bibles, actually means causing somebody to stumble or to fall. And so our lesson from these words is that Jesus exercises his freedom in order to take on an obligation that isn't required of him for the sake of others. Remember earlier when I mentioned a freely chosen obligation when we were talking about the Nehemiah passage? That's what Jesus was doing here, voluntarily taking on something that he didn't need to do strictly so that others wouldn't stumble or fall on his account. You know, I, I could go on and on about this, but I thought I'd let Scripture do the talking for me this morning. And so I found two passages where we see this lesson really played out in the midst of church community and Christian community. And, excuse me, and both of these come from uh, the Apostle Paul in his letters. The first one comes from the, the Church of Corinth. Now, one of the controversies Paul faced um, in the Church of Corinth was the issue of whether or not it was right to eat meat that had been previously sacrificed to idols in pagan worship. Now, some believed in the church that uh, there, that it was an act of disloyalty to God to do that. Some believed that uh, it was permissible because the idols really represent gods that don't exist. So what harm is, it, is, it, uh, is in it if the meat is sacrificed to gods that don't exist? And so that was the argument that played out in that time. And the reason it was important is because um, Christian business people would often be invited to come to their associates' Um, houses, and oftentimes a meal would be provided, and the meat from that meal would have been sacrificed to idols. This was a common practice in the Roman Empire. Now, sharing a meal with outsiders, some argued, would create opportunities so that more people would come to the faith, that more people would join the community. And so it was really a big debate in Jesus' time. Uh, Paul's time. So what Paul did was he navigated this tension by refusing to accept material support from the church of Corinth. Now, um, I'll explain why that is in a second, but just know that most of the churches that Paul pastored and, and founded would support him materially in some way. This church, he refused to accept that support because there were false teachers coming into the church and they were doing everything they could to exploit the people, to take their money. And so what Paul did was he tried to distance himself from those teachers. He didn't want to cause them to stumble on his account. And so he uses his own example um, as an example for the group who didn't want to give up eating meat sacrificed to idols. And here's what he writes in the letter of 1 Corinthians. If we have sown spiritual good among you, is it, too much to, uh, if, is it too much if we reap your material benefits? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we still more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. I've become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. So what we learn here from this passage is that we are made free for the sake of the gospel, 
That is why we are made free. It's for the sake of the gospel. Notice Paul's overriding motivation. What is he interested in? He wants to become a servant of those he leads, to become all things to all people so that he might be able to save some. What that means is sometimes we need to let go of our individual freedom so that those around us won't stumble or fall on our account. So let me ask you a number of of questions just to kind of get you reflecting. First, how do you exercise your freedom? How do you exercise your freedom? Do you insist on your rights or do you do everything for the sake of the gospel? And what can you do Or rather, do you do everything that you possibly can do to avoid causing somebody to stumble or to fall on your account? Now, at a different time, Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And uh, at first, this issue seems to be pretty much the same issue about meat sacrificed uh, or um, sacrificial meat of idols, but it actually was a broader issue involving Uh, not just what to eat, but how to eat it, how to prepare it, and with whom you could eat this meat. Now, what Paul did was he told the the Roman people, the the church in Rome, he said that, um, you know, because you are both Jewish and Gentile, because the first disciples started out as Jews and then more and more Gentiles joined the church, what Paul said is that you know both groups in exercising their understanding of what was right was causing uh, were causing one another to stumble, and so this is what he says in the in the uh, letter of Romans: If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What we learn here is that when we have divisions already going on in our church family and in society at large, we need to ask ourselves whether we're walking in love. Remember that we're made free for the sake of what? It's the gospel. We're made free for the sake of the gospel. And that means that our focus in life should not be on material things, but on the good of others, on how we can, how we can bring, come alongside others and help them to know the joy that we know through the power of the Holy Spirit who is transforming our hearts, our desires, all of those things in our life that matter. And so it all starts with us. Scripture tells us over and over and over and over again that reconciliation requires sacrifice. Reconciliation requires sacrifice. You know, maybe you're, in, maybe you're not in the wrong, but a relationship in your life is, is broken. You know, you have, you're, you have the right to be angry. You have the right to demand satisfaction, but uh, because of what Jesus has done for us, you can shower that person with the unexpected grace of a God who forgave the very worst version of you at your very worst moment. Do you want to know what the essence of the gospel life is? I think we find it in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It's one of my favorite scripture passages, and I hope it will be one of yours as well, because it really, truly shows us the character and love of our God. 
Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in a human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This right here is the reason that Paul was able to give up his, right, his rights as an example for the churches that he served. After all, what's the, what, how does the sacrifice of giving up eating meat compare to the sacrifice of a God who loved us so much that he took on flesh, lived a human life, died an excruciating death, and rose again from the grave so that we could live and receive the reconciliation all of us desperately needed? You see, God knew that reconciliation requires sacrifice, and it's the same for each and every one of us. You know, even when Jesus was tempted in the desert to supply for his own needs, he never wavered. He never put a stumbling block in front of us so that we could live. And when we read about how Jesus exercises his freedom in this Philippians passage and put it in conversation with the story from Matthew, we see something incredible emerge. We, we learn that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection redefine freedom. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection redefine freedom for each and every one of us. And we see this incredible lesson unfold before our eyes in a really small, short four verses in only one of the Gospels, this obscure story in our series. We learn from it that we're free to set uh, we are set free to live the life of Christ in our community and the world, no more and no less. But you might be thinking, okay, so you skipped the best part of the weirdest part of the story. What about the fish with the coin in its mouth? Come on, let's hear about that. Well, don't worry. We're going to get to that right now. And as we're going to do it, I want to just reread the last verse of the story just to refresh our minds. Here it is. This is Jesus speaking. However, so that we do not give offense to them, meaning the tax collectors, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a coin. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Now, you'll notice that the story ends with a command, but no confirmation of how it was carried out. It's left for us to interpret. And there are two popular interpretations that I wanted to share with you this morning. The first of these is a literal interpretation. Simply that, Peter went and did exactly as Jesus said. He went to the sea, he cast in his line, he pulled up the fish, and out pops the coin into his hand. And with that coin, he goes to the temple, and he pays the tax for both himself and for Jesus. And so that's, a, that's one of the two interpretations. And that interpretation, a lot of people uh, like that one. Um, some have pointed out that um, one of the uh, 
possibly problematic elements of that interpretation is the fact that Jesus, in no other place in Scripture, performs a miracle that could be considered by some as self-serving or as kind of a trivial sort of thing. But that leads to the second interpretation, um, which I found really, really interesting, and I hope you will too. The second interpretation is essentially the idea, and I've got kind of this representation up here, it'll make sense in a minute, um, is the idea that Jesus used kind of a wry sense of humor. We all know Jesus laughed, we all know that Jesus had a sense of humor, to basically tell Peter to go and return, to, at least temporarily, to his former trade of fishing in order to earn the money they needed to pay the tax. It would be like, for instance, telling a football player that he will find a pair of new cleats in the grass of the football field, or to say to a graphic designer that you'll find your next paycheck in the keys of your keyboard. So it's, it's, you get the idea. But the reason that I wanted to pull those out for you is, that, is to tell you that either provision, whether it's miraculous or mundane, uh, you know, it, it, God can provide for both of those things, and it doesn't really matter. That's not the point. The point is that when we give up our rights for the sake of others, the power of the cross transforms lives. We're talking about need. What is it that we need? We have a fundamental need as human beings to have a life of consequence, to have a life of consequence, and that's what God gives us when we exercise true freedom, when we understand what freedom really means. Jesus constantly taught that we need to go beyond the letter of the law to show others what they ought to do. And that leads me to our last question of the morning. What do we do with this? Well, I've got three ideas for you. The first of these is that we need to reflect on the ways in which each of us are a product of our culture. And, and please don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that we're not blessed to live where we live, we truly are. We have many benefits that others in this world uh, don't have, can only dream of. Um, but what I mean to say is that from an early age, each of us are taught that life is all about me. And unfortunately, that's something that we have to deal with day in and day out. And so a question to ask ourselves is how do you see this it's all about me attitude playing out in your faith as you try to follow Jesus. Now, the second thing that I wanted to bring up is to recognize that the gospel is countercultural and actively trusting God to overcome your culture's influence. You notice how I said actively trust. Trusting God is not something that's passive. It's not something that we don't just close our eyes, put our hands together, say a few words, and that's it. No, actively trusting is applying what it is that we've learned. It's, it's by continuing to trust God to lead us into where we need to go. We do it when we downsize. We do it when we declutter, when we continue to give as the bills add up. We do it when we decide to lift up the people who society says have no future. We do it when, even when what we're doing is looked down on by others for whom we're not playing by their rules. And the third thing is to be willing to turn stumbling blocks into stepping stones. If you reflect on how you're a product of your culture, and if you actively trust in God to overcome your culture's influence, then guess what? Then you will be given the power that Jesus had in order to influence lives. You'll be free to do for others as Jesus did for you. What do stepping stones do? 
They provide a way for somebody to cross from one side to another. You are never more like Jesus than when you turn stumbling blocks into stepping stones. And so that right there is the essence of the gospel life. And I wanted to end this morning with some words that I found from the, uh, the reformer Martin Luther, who wrote, a Christian is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. This is who you are, Christ Church. Go and do likewise. Let us pray. God, we thank you so much for your love and grace in Jesus Christ, which, which sets us free from that demand in our hearts to, to be satisfied, from that need to make it all about us. You set us free, God, so that we can make life about you, that we can serve others with that same sacrificial love that we saw Paul display, that same sacrificial love that we saw Jesus exemplify. God, I pray that you would change our hearts in this moment, that you would transform our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, that we may go forth and do likewise for your glory and show people that there is another way to live in this world, and that way is filled with the life that you promised to give each and every one of us. For you, God, have given us the life that is truly life. So overcome our barriers, overcome our sins, overcome all those things that keep us from living out our freedom in a way that blesses others and lifts them up because that is what you've called us to do as a church. That is what you've called us to do as a family. So God, I pray that your name would be glorified. I pray that you would be glorified in all that we do. And so I pray these things with gratitude and great expectation. In Jesus' awesome and mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, in a moment, uh, we're going to invite our ushers forward for our time of offering. You know, we were talking about uh, in the message today that each of us, every single one of us, has a part to play, that each of us can exercise our freedom for the sake of others, for the good of others. One of the ways we do that is through giving of our time, our talent, and also our treasure. And so I just want to encourage you in this time to give with glad and generous hearts. So grateful for each of you.
Church family, today is a brand new day. This week is a brand new week. What are you going to do with the freedom that God has given each and every single one of you? I want you to do something for me uh, this week is uh, take your sermon notes home and reflect on those questions that I gave you. Really sit down with God in some quiet time and think about those things. Think about what's my next step forward? How do I become even more faithful? in my faith journey. And it may not seem much to you, it may be just one little step, but that's all we need in order to move forward together, just that next faithful step. So I just wanna let all of you know um, that we have, uh, in just 45 seconds after we dismiss, we're gonna have breakthrough prayer right here at the front of the platform. Please come up and we're gonna pray for um, God to break through in 2019 as we continue to be God's people in God's world. Uh, if you have any questions whatsoever about Christ Church, wanna learn how to get plugged in, you can see my friend Lauren there under the cross. And for those of you who may need prayer, we have um, folks back there, right there, back there, um, waving her hand, um, who can pray for you uh, at, uh, right back there if you need it. And so I just want to encourage each and every one of you, be blessed this week. Go out, love God, love others, and live out the gospel life. Take care. What a great message that was that Pastor Tony delivered about what Jesus can do with a coin and a fish. You know, online campus, worship doesn't stop on Sunday. We continue throughout the week. We encourage you to join Pastor Tony and I on Facebook Live at 7 p.m. every Thursday. We also have two Faith Essential classes starting up this week, Alpha and Taleos. You can find information on that on our notes tab. We also want to let you know that we have bonus content there as well. And in a few moments, we're going to be going to breakout prayer. So in the meantime, we encourage everybody to love God, love others, and live out the gospel life. Have a great week, everybody. Bye. gather together and join hands as we pray for God to continue to do amazing things in our community at Christ Church. Let's pray. 
Creator God, God who breathes life into darkness, God who breathes new where there is need of renewal. You are a God who continues to amaze us in all the ways that you've worked in and through your people at Christ Church. May we continue to be that church, Christ's church, the church that you called and continue to dream us to be and become. May we be ever so mindful of the ways that you are at work. Point us in those directions. May we be bold to take steps and calculated risks that further your kingdom and further this ministry that any obstacles that may place themselves in our way, we can knock them down with your love and your grace and your mighty outstretched arms. God, we thank you for the people at Christ Church, those present with us, and the many others impacted by your ministry here. May all who see and all who hear come to know the amazing work that is your church, a church that loves God, loves others, and lives out the gospel life boldly, and ever so fervently. We lift these things up to you as you continue to do breakthroughs here among us. And all of God's people said, amen. 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 It might be hard to hear, but let me tell you, dear, if you could see what I could see, I know you would believe that isn't who you are. There's more to who you are. So when it's late,
stop bleeding until your heart stops kick drum beating when it's hard times when it's long days and the enemy is right up in your face when your back's against the ropes and you're feeling all alone keep fighting the
my head.